It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week with a big heaping dose of historical true crime. And we're going to tell you about a guy who just really sucks. Meh. Yeah. I mean, he he sucks, but but Amber chose him <laughs> because his last name is my first name. <laughs> I've entitled all my notes, damn it, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> my header is, this asshole has my name. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, this was definitely an interesting one to take notes on, and I'm sure it'll be an interesting one to record. She said her main goal was that she wants to say Christy murdered someone, <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> Several someone. Yes. So, before we get started, don't forget about our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Every week we bring you an old tiny crimey where one of us tells the other a true tale of historical crime. Amber this week told me about a very deadly island, and I was on the edge of my damn seat the whole time. <laughs> this <laughs> island, guys, you don't even understand this island. This island is amazing, so you should definitely be a Patreon so you can hear me talk about all the crazy things I find. Yes! And we also have our monthly extra, extra bonus episode available there. It's a bigger-sized episode where we each tell each other a story, and we also bring along a special guest, so that's going to be very fun as we go on having more special guests. We just put out the July episode at the end of the month there. And we had friend of the show, Jamie, come on, and we all talked about lady heroes. And we all have very different personalities, which you can see when you listen to the episode. Yes, our <laughs> definitions of heroes are very much are reflective of our personalities, I think. <laughs> very much. So yeah, that's just $5 a month. You can get all of that and a shout out at the end of the show. So yeah, come on over and uh, see what's what. And I usually don't pimp the social media up front, but we're doing a special thing uh, as we're recording this, that if you were on our social media, you will have seen and be given a chance to participate in a little contest. Ooh. Yes, we are giving away a sticker to the person who can guess from three hints the topic of this week's episode, which you'll know now and it'll be too late. But if you were on our social media, you would have had all week to guess. So, so you should follow us on social media. Yes, Old Timey Crimey on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I do post to both the Facebook group and page, but I'm j I just put the contest in the group because it felt like too much. <laughs> it just felt like too much. So follow us on everything. Yeah, just follow us on everything and you'll see it. So yeah, and next week we will give a shout out on the show to the winners of that prized sticker. So, all right. Should we talk about John Reginald Halliday Christie, who, by the way, is not getting a sticker? John Reginald Halliday Christie does not deserve a sticker. No, no stickers for him. Because he was one of England's most notorious serial killers. Way to give it away. I mean, <laughs> he's notorious, so he's already known for it. <laughs> Over there, perhaps. Yeah. So he was born April 8th, 1899. Dude, is he even, like, really close to my birthday? <laughs> Spooky. Yes. And that was actually my second vaccine day <laughs> this year, so... Happy anniversary! <laughs> yeah. Happy vaccine day. Fuck you, John. You don't get a birthday <laughs> shout-out. Right? So he was born in Yorkshire, specifically, I don't know if I can pull this off, but I'm going to try, 
Northaram. Northaram? Something like that. Something like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna get even scarier with the pronunciations later because I have something in Welsh to pronounce that it <laughs> took me like 15 minutes just to figure <laughs> out how to do it. So he went by Reg Christie. We look a lot at upbringings of serial killers, and it seems like most people feel that his really influenced his later activities, shall we say. There were seven children in the family, and he was number six, with four of his older siblings being sisters. His father was a carpet designer and an abusive one at that, whipped the kids whenever the mood struck him. And so Christie's relationships with his mother and sisters became a focal point of his life. But that was tumultuous as well. His, his mother tended to dote on him to the point of overprotection. She was a helicopter mom before helicopters were a thing. But he was her favorite, too. Yeah, yeah. He was mommy's little boy. He was. And when you have a mean father, I mean, he would make the family march. Like, long walks, and they had to march. And then the mom would be like, oh, my little boy. It was a weird dynamic. Very strange dynamic, yeah. And then his sisters kind of vacillated between doting and bullying. So he didn't really seem to ever know what to expect from them, whether they were going to be, oh, you're sissy's little boy too, or, oh, Reg, let's criticize or something, (laughs) or bully you or embarrass you or whatever. So probably as a result of the doting, he had a bit of a tendency to lay it on thick whenever he was ill, Use that to try to get attention. He also hated dirt. Yeah, I, I love that. He developed a horror of dirt. <laughs> which is, yeah, definitely interesting later on. And also, he's despite this horror of dirt, he also became a scoutmaster? Yes, among other things, yeah. <laughs> among other things, yeah. He was probably an early adopter. I looked into it, and scouting itself only started in 1907, and the Scout Association was officially formed in 1910. The organization has the current leadership listed on Wikipedia. Can you guess who the chief scout is? No. Bear Grylls. Really? Yes. Huh. Yeah. The funny thing being that I've never seen Man vs. Wild. I've never really seen much of what he's done. So I didn't even realize he was British. <laughs> so that was very much a surprise to me. I was like, oh, and, and British too. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. And he has been the uh, chief scout since 2009. Wow. Some notable former scouts, David Attenborough, David Beckham, David Bowie. Lots of Davids. David is really a popular name. Yes. Uh, two Beatles, that would be Paul and John. George Michael and Keith Richards was a scout. Huh. Yeah. Oddly, the Wikipedia list omits any mention of John Christie. <laughs> Shockingly. Christie. I'm, I'm shocked at that. I don't, I don't know why they wouldn't want to claim him as one of their own. Well, I can't think of any possible reason. He sang in the church choir and played sports. He managed school pretty well. He was, you know, an okay student. But unpopular with his fellow students. Yeah, they didn't really seem to like him very much. He seemed to maybe have like an off-putting personality or maybe it was the attention-seeking that got them. I don't know. There's no real reason given. It's just that he just didn't get along with his peers. There's a story told of when his grandfather died and Christy was eight years old. (laughs) He had been pretty scared of the man, but then at the wake... 
he looked at the body and he felt pretty good. There was this sort of like, oh, he's dead. He can't hurt me now. Yeah, and that seemed to kindle something dark in him. He also gained a new hobby, playing in graveyards. Yes, yes. He was actually particularly excited about a broken vault that had children's coffins in it. He liked to try to look inside the cracks. Oh, no. (laughs) That's pretty damn morbid. Just a little. Another formative experience was his conflicted feelings towards his sister's He was both disgusted and aroused by them. I literally have in my notes, ick. Yes, very ick. So around the age of 10, he saw one of his older sister's legs (gasps) up to the knee. (gasps) My pearls, I'm clutching them. (laughs) Clutching them so hard, my hand is white. The knee, not the knee. Heaven forbid. I saw her whole ankle. This isn't even the Victorian times. This is like the Edwardian times. But, okay, so he was aroused by it, and then he was even more angry that it aroused him because this was also a sister that he actually resented. So it it just made, like, that arousal and anger mixed together as one thing. Kind of twisted together into this really horrifying seed that would blossom into an even more horrifying flower. Yes, yes. He actually said at one point that that sister, he uh, he thought of his grandfather and wished her dead. Wow. Okay. Because <laughs> he saw her knee. So yeah, this really propelled the development of his hatred of women, which wasn't necessarily helped by the fact that when he started, uh, you know, attempting to have sex, he was not that great at it. I love his nicknames. Give us his nicknames. Reggie No Dick, Can't Make It Christy, and Can't Do It Christy. All of these are hurting me. <laughs> Except for Reggie No Dick. Well, okay, yeah, Reggie No, Reggie no Dick doesn't bother me at but all. Can't Do It Christy. Aww. Dry like the Sahara. I guess I shouldn't even try. (laughs) (laughs) When he was 15, he quit school and got a job. But then World War I started up and he joined up as a signalman. That's the guy who, it's right there in the name. He signals by waving flags or lights to convey messages. This was not a long run. He ended up getting knocked unconscious in battle once. There was a mustard gas shell involved here somehow. Supposedly he was blinded, although most accounts take pains to note that there's no official record of that. And then he didn't speak for three years. But the doctors were like, eh, we kind of think this is more psychological than physical. Well, yeah, totally was. So there was actually a story that even though his, his vocal cords were damaged, he got angry at something his father had said and went off on a rant, and then shut up and didn't speak again for six months. Oh, what do you know? We can talk now. Yeah, shocking. (laughs) After he was let out from the military, he went back to civilian life. He worked as a projectionist in a movie theater, but by 1920, he had found work as a clerk. He also liked to visit sex workers regularly. That would go on throughout most of his life. Seemed uh, that was uh, the only time that little Reggie would stand at attention, you know. Somewhat. 
Somewhat, so, not so always. <laughs> he started going to prostitutes from the age of 19, and he liked it because the women made no demands and would do whatever he said. Despite the fact that he couldn't talk at this point, he got hitched. He married Ethel Simpson Waddington. She was born in 1898, was the third of three children. I think her father was a mechanic. It was on the census, but it was written in early 20th century or late 19th century scrawl. And so very difficult to read and faded. He died when she was young sometime before she was 13. They ended up having no children. And really, that period of his 20s, probably good that they didn't have children because he was in and out and in and out of jail. Yeah. Did you happen to get a description of what they looked like, though? So I don't know if you saw pictures during your research. Yeah, I saw some pictures, yeah. So I I love this description of Christy. He was a quiet, inconspicuous man. His hair was a reddish ginger color and his eyes pale blue. He had an enormous forehead. (laughs) And he really did. He looks a lot like the guy in the American Gothic, the painting of the husband and wife, farmers, and the the guy has a pitchfork. I, I feel like... I neglected to actually look that picture up to verify that what was in my head was matching in reality, but I feel like that really was a a, a strong resemblance. Kind of, but if you put a straw into uh, the American Gothic guy's ear and blew his forehead up a little more. Yeah, a little, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and Ethel, she was, she was very pretty in her younger days. I saw some pictures of her when she was younger and she definitely was, was a bit of a looker. But you know what? She's described as plump, big bone, sentimental, and passive. But that's in her her older years. Yeah, that is I in mean, her older years. We all, speaking as somebody who went through the, the COVID period with an inability to work out due to physical issues, we all gain a little weight sometimes, especially in our 30s. There's a marked difference between how she looked early on and later. And honestly, the stress of being married to this man could very well be blamed for it. That's totally fair. (laughs) Totally fair. He had gotten a job as a postman, so he started stealing the mail. He got three months in jail, probably just a slap on the wrist due to his wartime service. He went back to his family home. After his release, he did not go back to Ethel right then. He claimed to be back with Ethel, but really just looks like he spent all that time at his parents. And again, with his voice was in and out during this time. When he was able to speak, he spoke very quietly, close to a whisper for the rest of his life. And that that just feels like it would be really creepy to live with. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not necessarily something he could help, even if it was psychological, as long as he wasn't very consciously putting this on as an act. You can't really blame him for it, but at the same time, I don't know if I could live with that. No, I I definitely could not. Be like, what? What? (laughs) He had another brush with the law in 1923, fraud and violence. He got probation and larceny in 1924, two sentences that added up to nine months. In 1929, he assaulted a live-in girlfriend by battering her head with a cricket bat. Mm Mm-hmm. Some very British violence. He got six months hard labor for that. In 1933, car theft, three months in prison. Okay, but he stole the car from a, a priest. A freaking priest. I don't think I realized that. That's kind of hilarious. <laughs> so a priest 
befriends him, and then he stole his car. What kind of person are you that you steal a car from a priest? Even the people who stole Mr. Rogers' car returned it when they found out it was Mr. Rogers' car. Right? <laughs> wow, yeah. The separation between Christy and Ethel seemed to get a little more certain throughout this time period. He went off to London while she found work in Sheffield. They did remain officially married. Christy would later say she was having an affair with her boss. That's uncertain, but she did have an affair later with Vaughn Brindley. She met him in 1928 in Sheffield, so kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. Perhaps, was, yeah. yeah. She told him her husband had died in the war. Wishful thinking. Yeah, right? And Vaughn later described her as extremely attractive, refined, well-bred, and an educated young woman. She was also timid, easily upset, and really thrived on attention from the opposite sex. Hmm. Yeah. There was actually marriage talk between them, which must have made her a little nervous, seeing as she totally lied about her completely alive husband. Yeah, <laughs> she, would, she would have to admit that she was still married and he was still very much alive. Yes, but it became pretty clear, at least to him, that she wouldn't be able to bear children, and that was a deal breaker for him. So they parted ways at that point in time. I, I love how it became clear. Yeah, I just they were doing it on the regular, and she was never knocked up. Yeah, is that's what I think exactly happened. what it was. How are you not pregnant? You're we, barren. We've done it like every day this month. <laughs> Christy was living. I can't get over the name thing. I love it. I love it. And the the great thing is, I also have to listen to this when I edit it. So I'm doing my damnedest to make this an error-free episode, which I already messed up once, and then. Jackson and I listened to it together for a quality check. So <laughs> it's going to be Christy, 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 Christy. Damn it, Christy. Damn it, Christy. Why are you going to murder people? Christy is living with a woman named Maud Cole in London and working as a lorry driver. She's the woman he assaulted with a cricket bat and got the six months hard labor. Now, it's after that and his car theft conviction that Ethel gets back in touch with him. They'd been apart for 10 years, had not even seen each other. 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. She went down to London to be with him, and the marriage is back on. It was said that at this point she was getting older, so she's around 35 and lonely. Yeah. And she wants the attention of the quiet guy who whispers sweet nothings <laughs> into her ear. And whispers literally everything else. So... They moved to 10 Rillington Place in Notting Hill, and that will be where the horror begins. Now, actually, wait, did you see where Christy was hit by a car? So Christy was hit by a car and had to be hospitalized with his long-standing hypochondria. We don't know that he was actually injured, but he did begin to say that he had many ailments which required him required him to stay home a lot and he visited two doctors for a total of 173 times over the course of 15 years did you do the math i did not that's an average of one visit every 31 days so once you're going a month. yeah you're going to the doctor once a month which if you're going to see specialists or if you do have a chronic disease can't especially if you're in the diagnosis process maybe maybe i mean 
I go for allergy shots four times a month. I'm still not seeing a doctor <laughs> during those times. I'm just seeing the nice ladies who make me go, ow. <laughs> and then they go to my other arm and I go, ow. Christy also likes to see nice ladies that make him go out. <laughs> yes, yes, good. <laughs> well done, well done. So they moved to Rillington Place in Notting Hill. Now, Notting Hill, a lot of people, especially Americans, probably your main association is the movie with Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts. It's very posh and cute. There's tall houses painted pastel. There's all kinds of cute shops and pubs. But back then, according to uh, someone not named, but quoted by The Independent. I always look askance if they're not named. It was, quote, a massive slum full of multi-occupied houses crawling with rats and rubbish. I also have a rundown three-story building in the seedy part of town. Small Victorian house was the end house, located against a factory wall. From there, they could hear the trains and see factory chimneys spouting smoke. Grit lay on the windowsills and the paint was flaking off in the front. Two other flats as small as theirs occupied the upper floors. One outhouse in the garden served for all three as there was no bathroom on the premises. There was also a common wash house, although it was not always in working order. Oh, dear. Yeah. Before... Sounds like a lovely new apartment. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes. A, a wonderful place to live. Before we dive into all the horror, I have British pubs in the area. There is the library bar. That sounds like a quiet time. <laughs> the butterfly bar. Okay. Goat Tavern. The Champion. The Sun in Splendor. And the Little Yellow Door, which I was drawn to, so I did a little looking into. It is an actual living room of a flat turned into a very stylish, comfy-looking pub. And they actually have a cocktail called... Crimes of passion. Oh, that is lovely. I know. But the question I have, does it have a yellow door? It does. Good. Okay. Yes. I was going to be real upset if it did not. Yes. They've, they've expanded and there's other locations. There's the little blue door and the little orange door in other areas. Same concept, same people, I think, just, just other areas. And in case you're curious, the crimes of passion is strawberry and cream infused element 29 vodka. Pessoa, passion fruit, and fizz, served in a goblet with a toasted marshmallow. I would drink that. You could go for a night at the Yellow Door, have a Crimes of Passion, and then uh, if you're still in Notting Hill, the next day head over to Egg Slut for brunch. I would love to go to Egg Slut, and I've actually heard of Egg Slut. Oh, I had not heard of it until I saw it on the map, and I was like, oh. <laughs> so the only thing that I do with my free time is um, food. And that involves a lot of food porn. And I've actually stumbled across Egg Slut as having one of the best dishes. Like, if you go here, you must go to Egg Slut. Oh, interesting. Okay, it is temporarily closed, at least that location right now. But I'm going to make it a mission to somebody go over there, go have a crimes of passion at the little yellow door, and then go have some brunch at Egg Slut. I would, I will happily go with you. Which I wasn't, I wasn't clear when I was looking at it. I was like, I hope it's a brunch and breakfast place and not like a birth control dispensary. It's actually, uh, they sell lizards and snakes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also have a little historical bit. From a historical artifact, we could even call it. Ooh. A letter from Ethel to her sister in Sheffield. This was written in 1938. 
So the war in Britain would have been ramping up. Dear Lil, I have not received a letter from you in reply to my last one. Of course, I did not expect you to come on Sunday last in view of the state of the country, and it would not be wise to come up to London until the crisis has passed, peacefully, I hope. There are a lot of emergency measures being taken here. You know it is the worst place to be in such a time as this. We have got our gas masks today. How are you all going on? Have you got them? In Hyde Park, they are digging air raid shelters on a large scale and various other things. I suppose you have some of these precautionary measures in Sheffield, all of which I hope will be unnecessary. I should like to see you all very much, and if it is possible, I shall try and come up to see you if possible. I should like to hear how you all are getting along. Hoping you are well. With love, Ethel. And I think it's just really interesting to see these little historical artifacts from a time like this, because you get historical summaries and descriptions of times like that. The man on the street, the woman on the street, that's whose point of view I'm interested in. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? So finding that letter was really fascinating to me and how she put gas masks in quotes because it feels like this new thing. And I bet if she'd written a year later and mentioned gas masks, she wouldn't have put it in quotes because it's just the same old, well, better put on our gas masks. and they're Just in case. Yeah. Christie managed to snag himself a position as special constable for the Harrow Road police station around this time because of the very fact that World War II was ramping up. So a lot of the young men, including those on the police force, were enlisting. They didn't seem to know, or if they did know, care about his past of having committed several crimes. Well, okay, so this was a volunteer position for the War Reserve Police. They should still do a background check of some sort. Absolutely. <laughs> I completely agree. But at the same time, it was, it was like, okay, you're a volunteer. We'll take whoever we can get because we need bodies. Yeah. And he was fanatical about upholding the law. Yeah, he leaned in hard. And he earned himself a nickname. <laughs> he he is so good at nicknames. He really is, yeah. So now his nickname is the Himmler of Rillington Place. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he really enjoyed having authority. He kind of he yeah, I'm trying to think of a euphemism and I got nothing. It made him happy. There we go. It made him very happy and he got very creepy. Yes, he did. He would follow women home, kept notes on their activities. He made himself a nice peephole so he could keep a close eye on the neighbors. He bored a peephole into his kitchen door. That is weird. Yeah. We're not talking about a peephole on the front door. We're talking about a peephole on the kitchen door, which means he was likely using it to spy between apartments. I don't really know the layout, so it's hard to say, but yeah. So, and apparently the lack of men being around due to the war also boosted his prospects with the ladies. He started up an affair with a lady from the police department. Her husband was off at war, so she was apparently feeling footloose and fancy free and decided to go with Whispering Guy. Mm. But uh, there was an unfortunate, from Christie's point of view, incident where the gentleman actually came home, found out what was up. It seems like he caught them in flagrante delicto. (laughs) Fancy. Fancy. And beat Christie up good, then proceeded to file for divorce and named Christie in the suit, too. Yes, he did. (laughs) And so Christie started a new policy thereafter that would not bode well for womankind. Never go to their houses. 
bring them back to yours. Which is so bizarre to me because he's still married. Ethel was going off to visit her family all the time. Yes. Either that would decrease in later years, which would cause some, we'll say, tension. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, but when she's off visiting family, that's when, like, he's going to have somebody over. And sometimes there were close shaves. Like, when he got a telegram that Ethel and her brother were going to be arriving there soon, and he had a lady there then. <laughs> okay, so so all of this to me, though, really seems like Ethel knew what was up, at least a little bit. Where she's sending a telegram saying, hey, babe, I'll be home soon. Like, that kind of threw me because I'm like, she just doesn't want to see it. She knows what's happening. They're not getting anything done in the bedroom. And I'm wondering if she wasn't also having a side hustle and it wasn't talked about. And it was, she was just with family. Her family did say in testimony later that she would visit at about the same rate that some of the stuff was happening. But you know what? I'm pretty sure my my family would lie for me, too. So... (laughs) Yeah, that's entirely possible. I'm I'm going to say I don't feel like she did. I feel like she had accepted that Christy was her life now, that th- that was what it was going to be. And I think that her escaping to her family was just that. I think it was escaping. She may have had some flirtations or something, but I don't think... Perhaps, but I think it would be very difficult to not have any sex for that long. I'm just saying. I'm throwing it out there. Women have needs. Men have needs. Christy's getting it on with hookers and... Hey, now! (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Slander! This is why I did it. And and I think that Ethel probably had a side piece, maybe not an emotional affair, but definitely something to uh, help her sleep at night. We're way off into speculation territory. Super into speculation territory. Rampant speculation! But there is also the fact that uh, it was later discovered that her uterus had pretty much deteriorated. And that was, you know, in another decade and a half or so after this period of time. But that explained the no children. And also, we don't know how that would have affected her hormones. Her reproductive system was producing fewer hormones. Then she might not have even really had the urge. Okay, but in fairness, like, I don't have working hormones, but I have working hormones. (laughs) (laughs) Hormones, nice. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> like, I, I, I get you don't have working hormones, but I find it hard to not have that desire to have that physical connection. That's important. And it, it's really hard to be a human, especially one that you had said before, loves male attention. Yeah. And to not really get any male attention and to definitely get no physical attention, which, again, very, very important. <laughs> I'm just saying, speculation, I think that she had at least something to ride home at night. <laughs> okay, all right. I just feel like she was probably just visiting her family and finding comfort there, but I also You believe more. the best in people. I, I really do not. Do. I really do, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, she is off visiting family or, according to Amber, doing other things. So he had the place to himself a lot. And so in 1943... He committed his first murder. Her name was Ruth First. She was 21, Austrian in nationality. It's likely, but we don't know for sure, that she did some casual sex work. She wasn't necessarily in it for a career. It was just to get by, supplement her income somewhat. And she had been keeping Christy company. They, uh, at one point, they had sex. 
During it, he grabbed some rope and strangled her. So, okay. I, I like getting choked. <laughs> and I'm down with that. But ain't nobody putting a rope around my neck. I feel like maybe it's just not my kink. I don't know. But I feel like that's a step too far. When I see a noose coming out, I'm out. Yeah. No. <laughs> it also has to be consensual. And in this case, it very much was not. Because he was doing this to kill her while they were having sex. I, I, usually I'm one to say whatever gets your rocks off, but in this case, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and I think the fact that he had a rope handy and had it within easy reach while they were having sex tells me... Premeditated. Exactly. So he actually kept the body under the floorboards, telltale heart style, mm-hmm. for a few days, then buried it in the back garden. And just as a note for our American and other non-Brit listeners, garden is generally like backyard doesn't necessarily mean there's food planted there. There can be, but it's essentially their word for backyard. Because so, it sounds so much nicer than yard. It does, yes. They they really do have a nice spin on things. Well, because their yard is usually like the park where the police walk around, right? Like Scotland Yard? I don't know. I feel like I used to know what yard meant because it was just like, it's kind of like yard was kind of similar to place. As in, like, like, kind of like a road name. Okay. But I might be wrong on that. But all I'm saying is, it sounds a lot nicer to say, I'm going to go to the garden, than to say, I'm going to go to the yard. <laughs> you know, I actually, I, I read something today, and so I, I know a lot of our listeners probably have heard of Reddit, and we have the Am I the Asshole forum. No, right? I'm wondering if we read the same thing or not. <laughs> so um, there, was, there was a British answer to this, and it's, Am I being unreasonable? <laughs> and I'm like, that is so much nicer than us. Yeah, it absolutely is. Am yeah. I being unreasonable? <laughs> yes. Very Brit. He buried her in the back garden. And I specifically mentioned that doesn't necessarily mean food there because the idea of human fertilizer is kind of horrifying. Well, it might have gotten him off, though. So Might have. Now, there was some speculation that this first murder was him lashing out and trying to feel powerful after having been beaten by that soldier who caught him with the soldier's wife. Christie would later say, I remember as I gazed down at the still form of my first victim experiencing a strange, peaceful thrill. That's horrifying. Just a little bit. Now, do you have the date... Of the lover and and her husband. I don't have the date of the lover and her husband. Don't do I? you? I do not. I do not, sadly. Because I have the date of Ruth. And that was August 24th, 1943. So I was just wondering how close in time those two things were. Yeah. I mean, it didn't even necessarily have to be the next day or the next week. That could have just been something that rankled under his skin. And this was the release that finally made him let it go. But it's all... It's all theory anyhow. In 1944, he met Muriel Amelia Edie at his new job in a radio factory. She had been suffering from bronchitis, and he's like, hey, I've got some stuff at home that can help you with that. Brought her home and basically tricked her into huffing gas. So Muriel was 32, Five foot one with dark hair. She was last seen wearing a black wool dress, which will come up again later. She lived with her aunt and had a study boyfriend. Mm. 
Chrissy would often invite Muriel and her friend for tea served by his wife. Oh, God. And, he, and once, the foursome actually went to the movies together. Wow. So this was not a stranger on the street. This yeah. was a work friend. He would invite her and her boyfriend over with his wife. They would have tea. They went to the movies. This was a friend. Yeah. It's so much more of a betrayal when it's a friend. It's weird how it just becomes deeper. <laughs> yeah, because she really thought she could trust him at this point. They'd been hanging out. They worked together. They hung out outside of work. And she's really thinking that he's going to help her with her bronchitis. That he has her best interest at heart. Yes. When it's the very, very opposite. The gas, it was, it was kind of like cooking gas. A lot of it was coal. It's pretty much carbon monoxide poisoning. Mm-hmm. After she passed out, he raped her and then strangled her. And then she ended up buried in the back garden, too, right alongside his first victim. And here I actually have a report that she was raped post-mortem as well. Yeah. It's not the first time we're going to see that idea come up. Nope. (laughs) Or it is the first time, but it's not the last, I guess I should say. The next four years are quiet, at least to our knowledge. But as much as I am prone to think the best of people, I goddamn doubt it. (laughs) No, okay, but... So we're going to ramp it up because our first victim, August 24th, 1943, mm-hmm. Muriel, November 8th, 1944, a little over a year apart. Yes. And then it's quiet for four years, but we'll find out later there was very well some things happening that we just don't know about. Mm-hmm. I feel like you have more information than I do on that. So when whenever you want to bring that up, <laughs> if you want to bring it up now. No, I don't want to give anything away. Okay, all right, all right. Just if you want to mark it with a pen or something. It's on my sure. last page, so okay, I bring cool. it up last, so I'm not giving any spoilers. Fantastic. Spoiler, he kills people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you didn't know that's what a serial killer was? Is this your first true crime podcast? Yes. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. So, Amber, what are you most looking forward to as our summer of normal proceeds? Going to the beach! Ooh. But really, I'm just excited for how refreshing it'll be to get out of town. That's kind of what I love most about summertime. Well, if you want your brain to feel like it's summertime all the time, download Best Fiends. When I'm collecting more and more cute characters in Best Fiends, it's like my brain is chilling poolside and the Cabana Boy just brought me another pina colada. Nice. When I open the app and find all the new stuff they've added in Best Fiends, it's like my brain just jumped in the pool on a hot day. When I beat a challenging level in Best Fiends, it's like my brain walked into a movie theater. Ah, air conditioning and giant sodas. So should we do a level check and see just how refreshed we've been? Absolutely. I am at level 2,475. Nice. I am at level 4,350. Wow. So, if you want your brain to be as refreshed as ours are, (sighs) download Best Fiends on the Apple App Store and Google Play for free today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. So, in 1948, some new neighbors arrive at Rillington Place. This is a young couple named Timothy and Beryl Evans. 
They are newlyweds with a baby on the way. And, and that sounds really nice at first. It's so not nice. Timothy did not have the best prospects. He was nearly illiterate, had an IQ around 70. He did have a job driving a van, but he liked to lie. He liked to drink, and he tended to indulge his tempers, sometimes even hitting Beryl in public. So you can imagine what's going on behind closed doors there. And Christy was already creeping as they were moving in. Timothy's sister was helping, and Christy just materializes in the flat as if from nowhere, offering her tea. That, that he's, yes. he's, he's amping up the creep factor he there. He really is. Yeah. So Beryl was 19 and petite. Timothy was 24. Uh, he only grew to be about five foot five, weighing just under 140 pounds, which may have actually fueled his temper like a Napoleon complex. He was described as the runt. And for the rest of his life, it's said that his intellect remained that of an 11-year-old boy. Yeah. Now, uh, he and Beryl, Thorley was her maiden name, had met through a mutual friend. They met on a blind date. Within weeks, they were engaged and then just as quickly went and got married. So uh, Beryl was actually really close with his two sisters and they actually said that she was almost as immature as their brother. So it was like a perfect match of just these children. Yes, yes. Little Geraldine was born, their baby. And then there was some drama in the Evans household, some violent arguments. There was another girl living with them for a bit, and it seemed like she was supposed to be there as Beryl's friend. But then she and Timothy started kind of heating up together. And brown chicken, brown cow. <laughs> yeah. And he left Beryl for a bit for this girl. So the girl's name was Lucy Endicott, and she was 17. Yeah. So is... she's two years younger than Beryl, but, like, I don't know if that was illegal at that time. I guess it no, probably it, wasn't. It almost definitely wasn't. Just weird. Yeah. She started by sharing a bed with Beryl while Tim would sleep on the kitchen floor and then we had some sleeping arrangements that that um, shifted. Shifted, <laughs> and Tim's mother actually forced Lucy to get the hell out, huh. which is awesome. Good job, mom. And then Tim threatened to throw Beryl out of a window. Oh my! Yes, and yeah, Tim left for a little bit for this girl, Lucy, but she found out pretty quickly that he could be a violent guy, and she's like, you know what, you can go back to Beryl, that's yeah, get the fine. Hell <laughs> yeah. Things were still not good there. Beryl told Ethel that Tim had tried to strangle her at least once. Money was tight, they were fighting all the time, and what a fantastic moment to discover that she was pregnant again. Mm-hmm. Talk about some timing. She was absolutely set on getting an abortion because if they had a second child, she'd have to quit her part-time job for sure. They were already in debt. And she tried a couple different things. They didn't seem to work. And Timothy just didn't really seem to get it. She'd be like, no, this is going to ruin us financially. And we're pretty much already ruined financially. So we're going to be doubly ruined. And he's like, it'll be fine. It's fine. It's fine. He yeah. also didn't even understand why Beryl would want to work. <laughs> like, he didn't understand that you have to work to pay bills. Like, the, the basic understanding really wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Which is almost, it's almost sad. It is. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. 
So that's how things stood in November 1949. And then something happened, although we have two different versions. So I'm gonna give you both of those. Now, the first story is that the Christies one night heard loud noises from above them in the Evans's flat, like a thump and then some movement of some kind, like maybe somebody moving furniture, maybe. <laughs> and when they asked Tim about Beryl the next day, he either said she'd gone to Bristol or Brighton. She went somewhere. She went it starts to with a B. Yeah. The backyard. Backyard. <laughs> Although he told his mother that Beryl was visiting her father elsewhere. The next day, he was fired from his job, and then he said, well, I'm going to go be with Beryl. But instead of doing that, he sold everything he could around the house and then went uh, beyond Bristol to Mether Vale, where his aunt lived. And yes, that is in Wales. I looked up one pub nearby to find one with a Welsh name just to challenge myself. There weren't all Welsh names. This is practically the only one, but uh, here it is. Shinner Ios Inn. And it doesn't look like it should sound like that at all. I would actually like to go there just to watch a bunch of drunk people try to say the name of the place they're at. Yes. I think it translates to the Nightingale Lake Inn, but that's... I'm so uninformed on Welsh that that's almost rampant speculation in itself. So, so yeah, I just wanted to. <laughs> you got to challenge yourself sometimes, you guys, you know? So the Christies in this version saw Tim once more. He came back to Rillington Place, told Christie that his wife had left him, and then went back to his aunt's. Now, that trip is almost four hours one way today. So eight hours to double back. That seems like a long way to travel just to update Christy on the state of his marriage. Yeah. Yeah, that's a little suspect. Yeah. Because he doesn't have any family there. He doesn't have a job there, so he doesn't have a reason. He sold everything in the apartment. What reason does he have to come back? Yeah, he doesn't have one, so that makes no sense, which is a part of the reason I call bullshit. Yes. So the second story. Beryl was seeking Christie's help with an abortion because she tried a couple things and they hadn't worked. And apparently being deployed for a year as a signalman and then working as a volunteer constable qualifies someone to perform abortions in Christie's view. <sighs> yeah. And he claimed to have done this bunches of times. So he's super experienced. So while Tim was at work, Beryl had Christie come to their flat to perform the abortion and supposedly Ethel knew all about this situation and even Tim knew even though he didn't actually believe that Beryl would go through with it even though she's tried a couple different things before. At that point Christy either gassed her or he didn't then he either had sex with her with her consent or was unable to or he had sex with her after he strangled her to death. Even the second version has many versions within it yes. of events. Yes. A friend of hers came by during this and later said that even though no one answered the door, she could just feel that someone was inside. Well, they had the door barricaded, like it was open, but there was something in front of the door. So it opened just a little bit and she yelled out and nobody responded, but she still felt like somebody was there. I would say he had the door barricaded. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because remember, he knows that she perhaps gets somewhat frequent visitors, so he probably thought of that ahead of time. He was like, well, probably better block the door just in case. Don't want to get interrupted. 
So when Tim Evans came home, Christy showed him the body, which showed signs of oral, nasal, and vaginal bleeding, said, oh, the abortion didn't work, and Beryl has been septic poisoned, as he put it. And then Christy said, well, we can't go to the police because, you know, they're probably going to think you're an accomplice or they might think that you're the murderer or a murderer. I didn't say the murderer. There's no murderer. This was an accident. (laughs) So they put the body in the neighbor's temporarily empty flat. That neighbor, I believe, was away for a surgical procedure. And Christy said, well, I'll just put her down the drain later. I had a question mark there. The drain thing does kind of come up later, but it's just this idea of putting her down a manhole, like getting a manhole cover up and putting her down, which, yeah, there's there's questions there. Well, yeah, well, the drain thing does actually come up quite a bit. Reading that first, my brain just went to, like, storm grate. <laughs> I was like, um, I don't know. And then as far as Geraldine was concerned, the little baby, she was 13 months at the time, Christy said he knew a nice couple who would take her in and adopt her, and told Tim to just give people the, you know, oh, we're on vacation story. And while everybody thinks they're on vacation, sell all of his shit and get out of town. And it's generally believed that Christy strangled little Geraldine. And that was his MO, anyhow. Catherine Ramsland says in her article on Crime Library, which of these versions is true depends on how one interprets the facts. There are problems with both and little direct evidence for either. And that's true. Even the second version has many versions lurking inside it, like incepting. Christy then moved the bodies to the wash house. Now, one source I read had Tim calling the police and reporting the disappearance of his wife and child and, and saying Christy did it. But it seems like that's pretty much almost the opposite of what happened because Tim's off at his aunt's. And meanwhile, his mother, in early December, she was planning to send a Christmas dress as a present for Geraldine. So she sent a telegram just to check if Beryl and Geraldine were still in Brighton or Bristol. Good good thing to check since we don't even know. Yeah. (laughs) And the relatives they were supposedly staying with telegrammed back that Beryl and Geraldine had never been there at all. Alarm bells going off, red flags popping up. It's a communist parade here. And she's like, okay. She starts looking into things. The lies start becoming apparent very quickly. And the aunt, who Tim was staying with, confronts him. He pretty much goes straight down to the police station and says, I have disposed of my wife. I put her down the drain. Now, keep in mind, there's not an actual confession in there. There's a confession to disposing of a body. Yes. But not being the one who killed that body. He goes on to tell a story But instead of Christy being the one who did all these things, it's a stranger who attempted the abortion using some medication. Tim's like, well, I told her not to take it, but she apparently did because I came home from work and I found her dead. And to avoid suspicion, I put her body down a drain under a manhole cover. And that is a big, heavy hole in this tale because they went to check that manhole cover to look for the body and it takes three men to move it. Yes, and also there was no body there. Well, yeah, that, that's... That too. That's another hole. <laughs> There's a couple holes here, and that's another one. And I also think they must have been kind of pissed when they found no body there, because, well, it took three of us to lift this thing that and was nothing. so heavy. <laughs> yeah. My back hurts now. 
with all that information coming in, he changes his story. Now he brings into the story Christy as the abortion helper and also as the body disposer. Still, the drain is involved, though. In that case, it would be two of them, and they still probably couldn't lift it because Christy, not a strong guy, and Tim, not a big guy, you know? The police do a cursory search of the Rillington Place flats. Mm. And we really, this deserves a blue ribbon for its very cursoriness. Because in the garden, there is a human thigh bone being used to keep a fence from falling. And they missed it. Just a whole femur standing there. Femur fence. Femur fence. That was one of the clues we gave in the social media post. Like, yeah, he just, how, how, how do you miss that? How, I tell you. <sighs> well, and actually, this was timing. Shortly after the police visit, a dog dug up a human skull, according to Christy, from the garden. And uh, he just threw it in the dustbin to be burned with the rest of the rubbish. It's amazing how it sounds less pleasant when there's human skulls involved. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is a literal boneyard. And I said in my notes, I've got a bone to pick with these officers. <laughs> Sometimes I put the puns right in there because I don't care. Just so you don't <laughs> forget the puns. Yeah. I mean, they didn't even dig even a little. They didn't even... Even beyond that. Well, they, had they dug, they would have found some stuff. <laughs> yeah. They didn't even just look around. Well, at the same time, though, that's not what they were looking for. So to them, it's Christy and his good-natured wife, Ethel. They're an older couple, quiet. Christy speaks in a whisper, and he was a vet, and he was a special constable for the neighborhood. And so police are going to accept his story because they trust him. Yeah, I think that special constable thing really weighed a lot in his favor. Oh, absolutely. I think that was a huge part of their just complete willful ignorance here. Well, because cops are going to trust other cops. They're going to mm -hmm. believe other cops over any victim that there might be because it's like a brotherhood. And even though he was like a volunteer cop, he was still one of them. And they're also going to believe another cop over somebody else who they already think is a perpetrator. Yeah, because I think they already kind of knew that he was a drunk and maybe sometimes violent person. And then you have this frail, balding, middle-aged man. Which one do you think killed somebody? Yeah, yeah. They searched the Evans' apartment, and they found some articles about a famous torso murder that had just happened that previous October. So within the last month and a half or so. That was the Stanley Setti murder committed by Donald Hume. And they also found a stolen briefcase. That briefcase was all they needed to arrest Timothy Evans. While they searched for more evidence on the murder, kind of buying some time and getting him in there for interrogations. They also brought in the Christie's to interview them. Of course, going easy on them because of Christie's you know, reputation and his status of having been, quote, on the force. Sort of, kind of. Volunteer. They searched around the house again, and finally, in the wash house, they find, wrapped in tablecloth, secured with a cord, Beryl Evans's dismembered body, and then they find Geraldine's body as well, and there's still a man's tie around her neck. 
cause of death is strangulation in both cases. Beryl looked like she'd been battered around the face. There was significant bruising there. She also showed definite signs of sexual assault. Again, there's bruising there. But apparently, that's not a good enough cause for the medical examiner to check for the presence of semen. Right. So actually, and this made me feel kind of, I don't know if this makes me feel better or worse, honestly. Because of the bruising, it was uh, determined that she was sexually assaulted while she was alive. Yes. And they also, with mother and child, found the remains of a 16-week-old male fetus. I didn't even, I mean, obviously that makes sense because she was pregnant, but I didn't, step, I'm thrown here. The remains were separate from her? Had she expelled it? it? Well, I don't know. It says that the police also found the remains of a 16-week-old male fetus. So I'm assuming separate. Oh. There's a lot of questions that come up with that, as in, like, did one of the attempts at abortion that she'd done before actually kick in later and work? Did, uh, I don't even know. There's a lot of gruesomeness I don't want to get into. I also wanted to uh, talk about your your statement, speaking of gruesomeness, about how the the bruising suggested that the sexual assault had occurred before the death. Doesn't doesn't necessarily preclude it from also happening after. No, it could have also <laughs> happened after. It just means that there definitely was assault prior to the death. And what we know of Christy, I'm putting good chances on also after. I feel like he really <laughs> likes to kill them as he's going. He does. He does like that. That kind of, it, it's it's part of the process. Uh, why yeah. does this guy have my name? Ah. Damn it, Christy. <laughs> Damn it, Christy. Oh, I struggle every every once in a while when my name is in a podcast. Generally, it's not that bad. But for instance, in True Crime Bullshit, the Israel Keys podcast about Israel Keys, not by him. Uh, and they, they chose a false name for his girlfriend at the time of a lot of the murders in the, in the beginning of the podcast, and they chose Christy. And I was like, you couldn't, any other name. You could have chosen any other name. <laughs> so. Could have said Amber. Could have said been Amber. Good with that. Yes. So Tim is transferred to the London police station. That's when he finds out that his daughter is dead. He didn't know up until that point. So he gives a lengthy confession or two. They're riddled with holes. It's almost as if the cops, not knowing or considering some of the circumstances, fed him a statement mm-hmm. that he could regurgitate or maybe forcefully led him to the confession they wanted or just plain forged the whole damn thing. Yeah, well, and he would go back and forth between confessing to crimes with inaccurate information or saying Christy did it. I did not. You did so. <laughs> damn it. Some of the holes we can point out. The day he said he locked Beryl's body in the wash house, there were workers there, specifically working on the wash house that, as you mentioned earlier, only sometimes worked. They might have noticed, and they were asked, and they were never locked out. So he couldn't have locked it in without the workers having noticed. His wife's weight was actually pretty close to his. 
So it's doubtful that he could get her out there from the house to the wash house alone without attracting any attention. I mean, you're going to at least have a couple grunts or something. And this is not out in the country. This is in the city. The houses are packed tight. He said that after the murder, he left Geraldine home alone for two days, and yet nobody heard or reported any crying. Like, come on. Of a one-year-old? Yeah, of a one-year-old. Any (laughs) one-year-old left alone for two days, probably going to cry at least once, I think. Right. Yes. Briefly flipped over to, oh, well, Christy did it, and then back to the story that he strangled her, and that was when he was in jail. Now, there's this weird thing that I couldn't really place in time, but he claimed to have hung out with Donald Hume, the murderer of the torso murder that we talked about a little bit ago, and said that they talked a lot about Hume's murder, which seems unlikely because these were very close together. Humes was only free for less than three weeks between the murder he committed and his arrest. That had been the October prior to Evans's murder. Evans would actually be tried one week before Hume, unless they both were being held in Brixton prison. The way it was mentioned, I couldn't tell if this was something where he was like, oh, I talked with Hume about his murder in prison after the fact. Whereas Mm -hmm. the way it was mentioned, it was almost like it was supposed to be potential proof that he had committed it because he talked about Hume with his murder before the fact and then committed a murder where he dismembered a body, something. So it's hard to pin that down, but we do know that he said he talked to this other murderer who had also committed another famous murder at the time. And also Brixton Prison, fun fact, it has its own restaurant, the Clink Brixton where inmates prep and serve European lunches in a smart dining room. Oh. Uh, Each item on the menu tells you what the students will learn in the process of prepping it. For example, you have pan-seared pigeon breast, hazelnut and radicchio salad, bitter chocolate sauce. And then the explanation for that is the students will learn how to prepare and cook poultry under units 223 and 230. And also learn how to pair unusual but complimentary sauces under Unit 236. I'm planning a whole culinary day in London. I'm going to go to Egg Slut, and then I'm going to go have lunch at the Clink Brixton, and then I'm going to go to the Yellow Door and have a Crimes of Passion. I don't know if I want to eat at the Clink. Out of curiosity, I suppose I do. But this is supposed to be giving them a useful trade that they can have afterwards. So it's part of the rehabilitation and not punishment idea. No, and I get that. And I get that. But um, we also have talked a lot over the years about poisoners. And I feel like a bunch of people in a prison could probably poison me. I feel like the risks are pretty low. They'd have to get the poison first. There's not very many poisons that are easy to hide in the human body then they would also have to have some motivation to just kill a random person for no reason. They're already in jail. Some people do, (laughs) yes. But clearly, if they're being rehabilitated, it's for the reason that they can use these skills when they get out. So they have hope for the future. I think if people have hope for the future, they're less likely to recommit, especially when they're already in jail. Perhaps. I don't know. There's a lot of people that thought they rehabilitated me, and they're all wrong. (laughs) So anyhow, Tim Evans went to trial 
The prosecutor leaned heavily on Christie's testimony, and meanwhile, Evans' attorney was just twiddling his thumbs. He didn't do shit. Didn't do anything. The trial was an absolute shit show. There were several people who gave testimony that did not at all match statements they'd previously given to the authorities. They would just change shit on the fly, or maybe because the police had encouraged them, because it would further implicate Tim Evans. But anybody that had something to say that would be like Evans didn't do it, for example, the workers in the bathhouse, Mm -hmm. they weren't even asked for a statement. Yeah. Yeah. Because... The, the cops and the prosecutor, well, they don't want any exculpatory evidence being presented. And therefore, the person whose job it is, Tim Evans' attorney, it's on him. And he's not doing anything. Yeah, he's, I don't think he's getting paid very much. And he's like, yeah, whatever. I also think he believed that Timothy Evans did it. So he wasn't motivated. Probably. Do you have the deliberation time? Uh, 40 minutes. 40 minutes. It's actually a little long on the old-timey crime side. They smoked a cigar. They smoked a cigar, yeah. The verdict was guilty, and he was sentenced to death. This would reverberate through the justice system. Not yet, but later. Well, he also, he he had an appeal on February 20th. So the two-day trial began January 11th, 1950, and then February 20th, he tried to appeal, and it immediately failed. Yes. And when the verdict was given, Christy sobbed like a baby (laughs) in court, cried like a baby, and... It was not a pretty picture because Tim Evans' mother also was yelling at Christie. She was like, you're a murderer. And Ethel Christie said, no, 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 he's a good man. And Christie probably whispered something. So. I did it. <laughs> yeah. And Tim Evans was hanged on March 9th. In the aftermath of this, Ethel Christie felt that she and her husband needed to move from Rillington Place because some Jamaicans had moved in above them. She's actually kind of pretty racist. Well, no, she's super racist. She didn't want to share the outhouse with them. Yeah, yeah. She was, like, grossed out by that. But they still stayed there. They had a bumpy period after the trial. Christy was in such a depression that the doctors actually wanted to hospitalize him. But shockingly, he refused. Which, for somebody who sought medical attention so much, you think he'd be like, Oh, goody! So a few uneventful years passed, as far as we know. Christy did manage to secure exclusive use of the back garden, keeping the other tenants out. Convenient. And as much as I do honestly believe that they were both super racist, obviously he also had another motive for that. You know, don't want them actually doing any digging. He lost his job because they had actually brought up some of his crimes in the trial. He did pick up a new job, then he quit that one, and then he started to get kind of annoyed at Ethel's constant presence because she wasn't going off to visit relatives so much anymore, and he really was craving some privacy. So Ethel Christie was last seen at Maxwell Laundries, bringing in some clothes on December 11th, 1952. Well, I also have... That she was not pleased that he was always underfoot at home. Yeah. And she began to taunt him about his problem. Oh, yes, his problem with with little little Reg. Little Reg. Little Reg can't stand up. 
Yeah, that, that seemed like the relationship was deteriorating quite a bit. Definitely familiarity breeding contempt. Maybe these two were better off in the 10 years that they spent apart. But, you know, I, th- I feel like a lot of people, especially in everything going on over the last year and a half, know this feeling quite well. Yeah, yeah. Time away from each other, very important. When everyone has to work from home, you might want to kill each other. I feel like Jackson and I grew more codependent. It's impressive, actually. Yeah, you know what? You two might have. <laughs> we really did. And so, yeah, Ethel Christie was last seen that day in December. Christie told people, well, she went off to Sheffield to her family, of course. People were still asking about her. He he kind of kept up the ruse. He wasn't super diligent about it. He wrote a couple letters and he sent a couple presents at Christmas time, but he didn't really keep it up. They would return letters. And he was like, I'm done with this. I don't need to do this anymore. He just, it just kind of petered off. And he also just went ahead and sold all of his shit and all of her shit, like her wedding ring. And the only furnishings that were left in the flat were a mattress, three chairs, and a table. Then did a little forgery to get access to one of her bank accounts and uh, drained that right out. Then in March, he invited a woman to check the place out for a possible rental, and she and her husband decided to take it. This is kind of upsetting. They got a bonus cat. He had left his cat there, but he decided to have his dog put down. Wow. I know, right? I mean, there's a lot that's upsetting here. Well, he was probably upset the dog dug up one of the skulls in the garden. (laughs) Maybe still holding a grudge, yeah. But this new couple was there for less than one day before they were asked to leave because it wasn't Christie's place to rent. Mm-hmm. They were out three months rent, but they were pretty okay with that because it smelled awful. It yeah. smelled terrible. And there's no word on what happened to that cat. I'm a little upset that I don't know. So then the upstairs tenant, Beresford Brown, was given leave to use the kitchen in the Christie's old flat. And so he's like, well, I'm, I'm going to do some cleaning, so I may as well mount up my, my wireless radio here to keep me company and got to get rid of this nasty smell and it'll be a lot easier if I have some entertainment. He's doing that and in the process of trying to find a proper place to hang it, he found what's kind of like a secret door behind some wallpaper and he peeks through that door and he sees a mostly naked woman's body. Police came, they took stock of the scene, they first look at that body. She was wearing a garter belt and stockings, there was a bra hitched up high on her chest, like above her breasts, a sweater and jacket kind of hanging around her neck, and she had been strangled. She'd also been bound at the wrists with a particular knot, a reef knot used by, as I looked up on Wikipedia, sailors and practitioners of macrame crafts. They also saw, when they looked deeper into the hidden room, two large wrapped objects. These were both bodies, and pretty much anywhere there were knots used, they were reef knots. Somebody had a habit they couldn't break. Somebody knew a knot, and they were gonna use it. Yup. Also, both of those bodies, bodies two and three, were stored upside down, standing on their heads. Yes. What is that? 
Come on, Amber, you can explain everything about killers and why they do things. Give me, give me a reason to store a body upside down on its head. So honestly, the, the only thing that I can really think of with that, because I, I kind of had the same thing, is that while he was doing it, he kind of forgot which was the head and which was the feet. And sure. was just like, this is the way I'm holding it. This is the way it's going in. Okay. All right. I can, I can, I can buy that. Like, I don't think there was any real reason for it. I think it was just kind of like, eh, this is the way I dropped her. Yeah. It, it, you're right. Not everything is intentional. You're, you're correct about that. Sometimes we read too much into things. Sometimes I read too much into things. I should take credit for my mistakes. <laughs> so <laughs> the bodies were perfectly preserved because the natural temperature in the secret room was five degrees Fahrenheit. Then they start looking more around the flat. They find under the floorboards another body and a collection of pubic hair in a tin. The timeline and information gathered on the corpses from the autopsies is the following. The most recently killed was a 26-year-old brunette. Cause of death was strangling and carbon monoxide poisoning. Sexual assault right before or after death, which had happened about four weeks prior to discovery of the body. The second one. 25 years old with light brown hair, likely a victim of gas poisoning, definitely a victim of strangulation, killed 8 to 12 weeks earlier. The third was a 25-year-old blonde, likely gas poisoning and strangulation, killed 8 to 12 weeks earlier. And Wait, hold on. Time out, though. Well, yeah. So those last two that you mentioned, the, the two 25-year-olds, mm-hmm. both had poorly manicured hands and feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them, and I thought this was really weird, had something placed between their legs in a diaper-like fashion. Sometimes I skip things because I know you'll pick them up. (laughs) And the second one was six months pregnant. I did have that, yes. Yeah, like kind of like diaper-like fashion was likely due to the fact that we expel body waste. Uh, while or after dying. Yeah. And so might have had something to do with with that particular fact. Very likely did, in fact, as he actually kind of said later. And these two, the pinkish skin tone of their bodies indicated that gas poisoning was likely Mm -hmm. here, but not definite. And now those three, those were the ones behind the wall. The one under the floorboards was in her 50s. She'd been dead the longest, 12 to 15 weeks. There was strangulation, but no poisoning and no sexual assault. So the identifications come in. The three behind the wall were sex workers, Hectorina McLennan, Kathleen Maloney, and Rita Nelson. He actually said that all of the women were of disrepute and they were the aggressors because he was a man of virtue. Love that. Love that. Uh, (laughs) But as he was confessing this, he was actually screwing up their names and and the details of it, too. Rita Nelson was the first to die, and he said that she had demanded money from Christy in the street. But Christy had also named her as Kathleen Maloney, but it was Rita Nelson that was killed first. So it seems like he got his, his people or dates mixed up there. She had visited a medical office on the 12th where she was tested and determined to be 24 months pregnant. Weeks, maybe? 
<laughs> yes, I love that it says 24 months pregnant. <laughs> Somebody made it say. Somebody made a boo-boo. So 24 weeks pregnant makes way more sense. So that would be six months pregnant. She was referred to the Samaritan Hospital for Women, but never made it there. And her landlady had reported her missing. According to Christie's account, haha, she told him that she would scream and accuse him of assault if he didn't give her 30 shillings. He walked away. She followed, forcing her way into his house. And then she picked up a frying pan to hit him. They struggled. She fell back on a chair that happened to have a rope hanging from it. Christy blacked out and woke up to find her strangled. He left her there, had some tea, and went to bed. <laughs> when he discovered she was still there in the morning, he wrapped her up, diapered her, and shoved her into the cupboard. Oh, dear. More likely than not, he actually had met her at a pub, learned of her troubles, and offered an abortion, mm. as he did with his prior neighbor. And that was how he got her to the house. Now, around the same time, within a few weeks, he encountered Kathleen Maloney, 26. Christy had actually met her before, three weeks before Christmas. He'd gone with her and another prostitute to a room where he had taken photographs of the other girl in the nude. Oh, yes. He fancied himself quite the photographer. He did indeed. So on this night, he went to a cafe and sat at a table where Kathleen and another girl were discussing their search for flats. Kathleen was an orphan who had given uh, birth thus far to five illegitimate children, mother to five. That night, she went home to Christy, probably to look at an apartment he had available, mm -hmm. and was never seen again. He later said that she had made advances as a way to get him to use his influence with the landlord. I really don't think that happened. Yeah. So he strangled her with a rope, had sex with her, and I don't even want to say had sex— he raped her dead body and placed a diaper between her legs and then went to bed. That seems to be the thing. So the next morning, he made tea with the corpse still sitting in the chair, then wrapped her body in a blanket. This guy is ruining tea for me. Yes, put a pillowcase over her head and shoved her in the alcove. Her body was on the floor with her legs vertical against the back wall. He covered her with dirt and ashes and then closed the cupboard back up. Then another woman, Mrs. Margaret Forrest, met Christy and listened to him brag about his medical expertise. She made an appointment to come and take his treatment for migraines. Hmm. I don't think that gas is really going to help with the migraines. No. She failed to show up for her appointment. It is likely that she was going to be a potential victim since Christy told her that his treatment involved gas. But when she failed to go to her first appointment, he came looking for her quite angry. He insisted she come immediately to his house. She agreed, but then lost the address on the way. Oh. So she never made it. She got lost. Thank goodness for her. Yeah, right? And then we have Hectorina McClellan, 26. She and her boyfriend were hard up for a place to stay, so he had invited them to come share with him. They stayed together in the barely furnished flat for several uncomfortable days. In one version of the story, Christy asked them to leave, 
The girl returned the next night to wait for her boyfriend, and when Christy tried to get her out, they struggled. Some of her clothing got torn. She fell limp and sank to the floor, and Christy thought some of her clothes had gotten wrapped around her neck. So he pulled her into the kitchen and sat her on a chair. She seemed to be dead, so he stashed her in the cupboard as well. But then he confessed a second version. Of course. Of course. He has so many different stories. I know, it's amazing. When Hectorina and her boyfriend were at the labor exchange, Christy showed up and invited Hectorina to come to his house that morning alone. He poured her a drink and then unfastened the clasp that released the gas. She tried to leave, but he stopped her in the hallway. He said that he seized her by the neck and applied sufficient pressure to make her limp. Took her back to the kitchen, used the gas again. This is so creepy. So she's gassed, unconscious, and he says, I made love to her and then put her back in the chair. I killed her. Mm. So creepy that he said, I made love to her. Yeah, yeah. No, that's rape. That's yeah. Rape. So then he shoved her into the alcove in a sitting position. He kept her upright by hooking her bra to the blanket around Maloney's legs. Oh, my God. So oh. he hooked one body to the other body to oh, keep no. her upright. Oh, no. It gets worse. Oh, no. Hectorina's boyfriend came looking for her. Christy said he hadn't seen her, then invited him in to have a look around and made him some tea. Oh, the tea. Whereupon the boyfriend noticed a nasty odor, but didn't question it because, I mean, again, this is the slums at the time. So mm-hmm. he didn't say anything. He was like, maybe this old man shit himself. I don't know. I'm, I'm out. Thanks for the tea, man. And left. So that is what I have on the extra three that were uh, not much talked about. Yes, yes. There is, it's, it was quite a... Quite a lot. Quite a lot. Quite, quite a grim couple of months on Rillington Place. They were the ones who were in the wall. And of course, in the floorboards, it was Ethel Christie. Interesting. The signs of sexual assault peppered with some of the other victims, but definitely not in Ethel Christie. And also he had a, an age type he liked as well, we can tell. Mm-hmm. Also might partially be that age is more likely to be engaging in sex work, so that could be a factor too. But So finally they dig out back and they notice the femur, which has been there for seven years. Se- seven years. And nobody noticed a human thigh bone as part of the landscaping. <sighs> <sighs> in unison sigh. They also find bones in the ground and in the trash bin. The two bodies back there were those of Ruth First and Muriel Edie. Her his, his much earlier kills. Some thought that he might be a romantic necrophiliac. This is when I learned that there are three types. Sometimes you get some knowledge you wish you didn't get. Uh, there's violent, fantasy, and romantic necrophiliacs. Romantic ones tend to keep the corpse around afterward whether they continue to use it or not. And just a little behind the scenes for you guys. Uh, As I was making my notes, I got to that point when I was talking about the romantic necrophiliac, and then the next thing that I needed to fix in my notes was a mention of the pubic hair in the tin. And I was like, well, 
I just wrote romantic necrophiliac and now I'm talking about pubic hair in a tin. I think it's break time. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to go out back and stare into the distance. Think about my life and my choices for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was a lot to deal with at once. Yeah. This is, that's the behind the scenes look into old timey crimey research. Sometimes you just have moments when you're like, I'm out for a little while. I'll come back in half an hour. So yes, uh, the romantic ones do tend to keep the corpse around afterwards, whether they continue to use it or not. So we, we really don't know because it's all, it's still speculation as to whether he was a romantic necrophiliac, whether it was him just keeping them around for comfort. And he would later say as to Ethel that he just liked having her close. Okay, yeah, I'm calling bullshit, but I want to talk about <laughs> pubic hair. All right, let's talk about pubic hair, sure. Okay, so these were his trophies, they think. Mm -hmm. He had mementos. So he had this pubic hair. So once tested, it appeared that three samples of the hair could not be matched to any of the women found on the property, suggesting that we had more victims than we realize. And that four-year stretch of quiet, I think that's where this stuff came from. So only one clump of pubic hair matched a victim, and it was Ethel, his wife. So even if the other two belonged to Ruth and Muriel, who had been badly decomposed by then, that still leaves us another unaccounted victim. There's Beryl. We don't know if they got any pubic hair samples from her. And there was a stretch of years between when she was killed and when they actually found the pubic hair and started testing it. So there's that as a possibility. You might have kept that as a trophy from her. There's also, he had girlfriends, you know? There was at the Most very, of them not willing. Well, at the very <laughs> least, there was the girlfriend that he, he hit with a cricket bat. He could have just got a sample from her sometimes. That definitely does raise some big questions as to his activities and whether there were bodies buried elsewhere. There's also some potential answers in some of the information we already have, but it all adds up to a big fat, I don't know. Like, all I can do is just shrug and say, maybe this, maybe that. I do personally believe he was active. I agree. During the time periods when it appears that he was quiet. I personally believe just as a, a gut feeling and also as a feeling that he couldn't help himself. Yeah, I don't think you can start killing and then just stop mm -hmm. and then just start again. Yeah, I don't think that the pubic hair is a definite indicator of that because there are, are other potential answers to it that aren't activity. I just think that he couldn't help himself. And yeah. that in itself feels like it's enough. Like he needed that release. He needed to feel that power that he got in those moments. And yeah, I honestly feel that it's, it would be almost impossible for him to have that long of a period of not doing anything. So, the police, obviously having figured out that the previous tenant of this flat might be someone they want to talk to, they start a manhunt for Christie. This was front page news. He had run out of money, was basically wandering around London. He was caught relatively quickly and within five miles of the flat. It's strange that when they searched him, they found all the usual stuff that one might carry on their person, plus a clipping about the Tim Evans case. That 
is weird. I almost feel like that was guilt because, so he hated women and he targeted women and he accidentally killed some guy. Not physically, like he didn't strangle him to death himself, but he testified against him and got him to hang for a crime that he had committed. Yes. And I think that on some level he did feel guilty for that. Yeah, that might have been almost in a way a reverse trophy. Trophies killers keep on them or keep in general to remind them of the thrill. And this was maybe in a way a trophy to remind him of the guilt. Well, yeah, because he, he of, didn't hide the bodies well enough. They found the bodies and, and thank goodness it was pinned on somebody else. But it was because of him that yeah. that, that man was dead. Or... To go completely to the dark side and there is no humanity whatsoever in this man. There's no guilt whatsoever. And that's, that's a trophy of the thrill of having gotten Timothy Evans hanged. It very well. And actually, you're probably right. I'm trying to give this guy some humanity. I, I tried. And then the idea of it maybe also yeah. being a, more of a classic trophy just obtained through a death that was less of a classic serial killer method occurred to me. And I was like, oh, crap. That's probably it. That's probably it. <laughs> yeah. Here is something from the interrogation. This is a bit of a long quote. This was the very beginning of the interrogation. I'll tell you as much as I can remember. I have not been well for a long while, about 18 months. My wife has been suffering a great deal from persecution and assaults from the black people in the house, 10 Rillington Place, and had to undergo treatment at the doctor for nerves. In December, she was becoming very frightened from these blacks. And was afraid to go about the house when they were about, and she got very depressed. On 14 December, I was awakened by my wife moving about in bed. I sat up and saw that she appeared to be convulsive. Her face was blue, and she was choking. I did what I could to try to restore breathing, but it was hopeless. It appeared too late to call for assistance. That's when I couldn't bear to see her, so I got a stocking and tied it around her neck to put her to sleep. Then I got out of bed and saw a small bottle and a cup half full of water on a small table near the bed. I noticed that the bottle contained two phenobarbital tablets and it originally contained 25. I then knew she must have taken the remainder. That is not borne up by the evidence at all. Uh, there's no evidence of poisoning in the autopsy. And yeah, it just is, it's a bunch of bullshit. He said that after that, he left her body just there in the bed for two or three days because he just didn't know what to do. Oh, yeah, he doesn't know how to dispose of bodies at all. And then he realized that there were some loose floorboards in the front room, and, and so that would do the trick, and said he did that because he wanted to keep her close and he didn't want to lose her. Not killing her would have been a good step in that direction. Yeah, you'd think. One would think. Yeah, and then his reasoning for the three women found in the wall was that they were all some sort of self-defense, either of his physical person up or of his honor in his telling. Nothing is his fault. Nothing exactly. is his fault. Exactly, yes. And of course, he always blacked out and then just woke up to find them dead. It's so funny that he always blacks out right before people end up dead. That's so weird. In reality... All those three he lured back to his home by either offering them a place to stay or offering them medical treatment. Now, apparently, he'd fallen short of his mark. He claimed six victims, but he'd actually said later that he'd been going for twice that. He wanted an even dozen. And those six he claimed 
do not count Beryl and Geraldine Evans. He still continued to refuse to count them among his victims even after he was like, okay, yeah. He did start actually telling the real details, although he really hedged on that whole Beryl Evans thing. It was said in the papers that in the arraignments, he looked, quote, bored with it all and, quote, entirely unconcerned with the proceedings. They put him on trial for Ethel's murder in June 1953 in the same court where Timothy Evans's trial had been held. And it's either British custom or law, probably law, to only try for one murder when there are multiples. Yeah, the strongest case. Yeah. People started lining up at 4 a.m. when court was scheduled to start at 10, but it seems there were only about 40 people that were lining up. The rush to court cases was dying down a little bit, and just 16 people were let in. There were a bunch of spectators on the street lining up waiting to jeer him, so he crouched on the floor of the police car when being taken to court. He had a plea of not guilty and was going for an insanity defense. Uh, I love this, though. So several psychiatrists examined Christie in jail, and he provided a lot of details, most of them not really accurate. The doctors were unanimous in their dislike of him. They said he was nauseating and sniveling. Sounds about right. Which is amazing. And then they also said that he would always whisper quieter when it was a question he did not like. Oh, yeah. He definitely had a defense mechanism there. And he even did that, I believe, in the Tim Evans trial. That was another yeah. another tactic. But he would he would also disassociate when describing his own deeds, and he would start talking about himself in third person as if it wasn't him that really did it, which is maybe a little towards the insanity defense, but not enough. No, it's not enough. No, yeah. The the defense was really going hard in talking about the murders because the murders were meant to prove his insanity. His own lawyer said he was a maniac and a madman and a psychiatrist said the same thing. So they're trying to use this idea of the dissociation and the blacking out that he didn't know what he was doing was wrong when he did it to try to prove the incompetence. But he was just such a good liar. So he would do this in court and then go back to his cell and brag about it to other inmates. Mm -hmm. And he even compared himself to John George Hyde, the acid bath killer. He was proud of it. Yeah, yeah. He really was. He did admit uh, as, as a motive, all my life I've had this fear of appearing ridiculous as a lover. Yeah, that's a good reason to kill a bunch of people with vaginas. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. That seems like the perfectly natural and only response, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely it's something you should take out on everybody else, not something you should work on yourself. His doctor of 20 years testified for the defense, said he had prescribed phenobarbitone for both of the Christie's, said Mrs. Christie had seemed very worried and nervous when he last saw her on August 28th. The prosecution argued that obviously he knew what he was doing, because if you don't think you're doing anything wrong, you don't try to hide it in the walls and the floorboards and the garden. After a four-day trial, deliberation was an hour and 20 minutes. He was found guilty and given a death sentence. Woohoo! Yes, indeed. He was hanged on July 15th, 1953, three weeks after the trial. 
This from the Winona Republican Herald. The sentence was carried out by Albert Pierpont, England's chief hangman, who keeps a Yorkshire pub called Help the Poor Struggler when not at his official duties. I definitely read that as Help the Poor Strangler <laughs> three times. It wasn't until I was typing it that I was like, oh, that's Struggler. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then a crowd of about 200 persons, including many school children, was gathered outside the prison gate because we weren't having public executions at this point in time. They did dig into the Evans murders to try to determine whether Timothy Evans had actually been guilty. And at first, the inquiries were like, yep, sure was. Nobody here did anything wrong ever. But within a few years, another inquiry was brought up, and there were more voices here that were starting to say that Evans had been wrongfully convicted and executed. Still, over the years, the question has been debated continually, although Evans did get a posthumous pardon for the charge of killing his daughter which still leaves the question of who the law holds responsible for Beryl's murder. His case was one of the cases that helped abolish capital punishment for murder in the UK. There were three cases altogether, and his case was one of them where they were like, yeah, maybe we should stop this. And I say that with all knowledge and self-awareness of the US and its capital punishment stance. So, <laughs> yeah. In the aftermath, some personal letters written by Ethel, 62 of them, were auctioned off for 4,600 pounds in 1998. That's $11,800 today. So even all those years later, they were fetching quite a sum. Criminologists tended to be leading the bidding there. <laughs> there was, of course, a movie in the 70s with Richard Attenborough and John Hurt. And in 2016, just fairly recently, there was a BBC drama starring Tim Roth. Ten Rillington Place became sort of like a tourist destination, even after it was torn down. It's now a green space, a little like mini park. Still, though, with the, the house not even being there, a man who lived in the house next door to where Ten Rillington Place was told The Independent in 2016 that the place was cursed. Quote, I have a bad feeling about this place. The electrics go wrong. The toilets go wrong. The heating goes wrong. I'm going to get an exorcist in. I've had devout Catholics come and told them to bring holy water. I've had bad luck since I've been here. I've been here 40 years. My health's gone. Everything's gone. Wow. One of the other neighbors is not terribly upset about it, in contrast. This is a Norwegian composer who said, I didn't have any bad vibes when I walked into the house. And I thought to myself, London is a big city. Unless you can show me one plot of land where someone hasn't been killed, slaughtered, raped, or stabbed in the past 1,000 years. Well, I don't think that plot of land in London exists. <laughs> that is our stuff on the man I unfortunately kind of sort of share a name with. Damn it. John Reginald Halliday Christie. And I have a special plea for all of our listeners out there. Find me a killer. Find me a killer who has done reprehensible things. And is named Amber. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I don't think I've come across it. So, but uh, it, it, even honestly, even if it's a new timey crimey, we'll make it happen. I'll make it happen. <laughs> this will happen. Going off the rails to find a killer, Amber. Revenge needs to happen. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I feel like Amber is not a very common surname. So No, no, it's not. I mean, a first name, but it didn't become more popular until like the, the 80s. 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know that my chances are slim, but I wanted to put that plea out there to the universe. If you find somebody, you can email us at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. <laughs> you could leave it in a review on Apple Podcasts, which you should be doing if you like this show anyhow. You can come over to our social media and let us know that way. Old Timey Crimey on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We might have more contests upcoming. You never know. So, you know, maybe even we'll do more than a sticker. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's uh, Redbubble. We're on there. Links in the show notes. Amazon wish list. Links in the show notes. All that stuff. Links in the show notes. I don't have much more bullshit. And I have to pee and my nose is oddly stuffed up. I think my allergies are like hitting me weird. So uh, Amber, what you doing this week? I am coming here oh. for a, a pizza party. Yes, you are. You are coming here for a pizza party and Ooh. we're going to play some board games. Amber will probably try to find a way not to play because she's very competitive. Okay, look, I'm not allowed to play a lot of board games. In in fairness, it's not that I don't want to play. It's that you, well, you as my group of friends don't want me to play. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to say and do horrible things. <laughs> I am a board flipper at times. Yeah. Um, I am the youngest of six children, and I get very, very competitive. <laughs> like, people almost died over Monopoly at my house, and that's just how I was raised. <laughs> So that should be interesting. So yeah, I am hosting a pizza and, and board game party. And it's the pizza that we haven't had in years from the I'm place. So down excited. In, yeah. It, you gotta order this pizza in an alley and then you walk into the kitchen to buy it and it's amazing. But it's so good you have to order it like two days in advance. <laughs> like yes. that's how good it is. But yeah, you you literally walk into what it appears to be the kitchen of someone's house after having waited in an alley and you're like, I'm here for my pizza. It feels very uh sketchy, but it is worth it for the pizza. So so yes, having that pizza after many years. And yeah, I'm doing that. I'm going to get started on volunteer things this week. And also, of course, that's full timey crimey stuff because this is my world. We have a patron shout out. Woo! Welcome to the Patreon, Cat. Oh, I got to sing it. Cat Gray. We hope you are enjoying all of the offerings there. Welcome, cats. Yes. So, yeah, that is our show this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate all of our listeners. Just your presence. The numbers I see every Friday when I refresh the page, not at all obsessive, makes me so very, very happy. And we would love it if you would go tell a friend. If you're enjoying us, then your friends will too. And word of mouth can honestly be the best way that a podcast can grow. So yeah, tell a friend. And um, as always... Thank you for listening to our filthy words. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are Biography.com, Catherine Ransland on Crime Library via Murderpedia, The Scout Association article on Wikipedia, Chris Hobbs on ChrisHobbs.com, Oren Gray on The Lineup, Jen Jeffers on Ranker, Max Benwell on The Independent, and from Newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, Herald and Review, The Age, and the Winona Republican Herald. My sources this week are Biography.com, Ranker.com by Jen Jeffers, TheLineup.com by Oren Gray, Murderpedia.org, All That's Interesting by John Karofsky, and New York Daily News by Mara Bobson. Hemingway, stop it!
Hemingway wants a true crime podcast, too. <laughs> he does. Oh, Hemingway Cat has joined us. You're a true crime podcaster, aren't you? <laughs> he yawned. He yawned. Well, you know, everybody's got their opinions. Just, you know, don't go putting that on the, the Apple podcast reviews. <laughs>